there are people who study Torah and understand it and know it well, but are not nourished by it. In other words, the Yiddishkeit does not thrive on it. And sometimes the exact opposite. The more they learn, the less nourishment or the less life and enthusiasm they have for mitzvahs and for Yiddishkeit. In the olden days in the church, every priest had to be familiar with Gemara, had to be a scholar in Gemara. That didn't make them more Jewish. So they learned and they studied and understood, and it didn't do anything for them. That's an extreme example. But there are Jews who are scholars in Torah, who understand Torah, have very good heads, and they learn it, and they know it, and they can make good speeches about it, and uh, then they turn around and eat non-kosher food. So obviously, the knowledge hasn't nourished them at all. And that's like eating foods that you can't digest. So you eat, and you eat, and you eat, and you're not any healthier. Or if you're into vitamins, there are certain vitamins that if you take a lot of them, it doesn't do you any good because the body doesn't use it unless you take it along with another vitamin that allows the body to, to break down the first vitamin and, and make use of it. Otherwise, you're wasting your time. So what is this second vitamin that makes the first vitamin work? Huh? The, the awareness that this is God's Torah. Studying Torah without that awareness is a waste of time. And that's what the Mishnah means, that whoever uh, uh, the one whose fear precedes his wisdom, the wisdom will last. The one whose wisdom precedes his fear, the wisdom will not last. If the fear precedes the wisdom, then the wisdom is meaningful. But, but if the wisdom precedes the fear, then the wisdom won't last. It's not useful. <clears throat> and the fear being the awareness that you're, that you're studying God's Torah. So when you have these two ingredients, that the Torah is taken inwardly, you really do understand what you're learning. You're not merely mouthing the words. And you realize whose Torah you're learning so that it is assimilated into your soul. It's not like swallowing uh, pebbles, which the body can't use. It's, um, it's, dige it's digested by the fact that it is assimilated into the soul. The soul can make use of it. Then it nourishes from within. Torah comes in stages throughout history. There was a long time when the only that Torah consisted only of the five books. Maybe for, for a while it consisted only of Ten Commandments. Then it became five books. Then it became 24 books. Then it became the Gemara, Mishnah. Then it became the Gemara. Then it became the Shulchan Aruch and the Rambam. And then it became uh, Kabbalah. So Torah comes to us in stages as we need it. 
Those parts of Torah that we didn't need, we weren't allowed to study, although it was always in, in existence. But if you don't need it, you're not allowed to study it, because to pursue Torah as an academic thing is not allowed. So unless we need it for our neshama, we're not allowed. And because we're not allowed, it basically was never revealed. So for example, uh, the oral Torah was supposed to remain oral. When the rabbis of the Mishnah decided they want to write it down, there must have been a lot of opposition. How can you write down oral Torah? Oral means not written down. How, can you, how dare you write it down? And the rabbi said, we must. We must. If we don't write it down, we're going to forget. Because we're no longer living in Israel. Life is not peaceful. We're going to get, we're going to, we're going to lose it. And so, and eventually they won. <clears throat> but I'm sure there was a lot of opposition. And then when the first Shulchan Aruch was written, there was a lot of opposition. The Rambam was called a, a heretic. How dare you do such a thing? Who gives you permission to tamper with Torah? And the Rambam said, we must, we must. The time has come now for this. And so on with, with every stage of, with Kabbalah, The tradition was that you don't study Kabbalah unless you're a Talmud Chacham and unless you're over 40 and married and, and settled and, and, and wise and, and, and even then, nobody wants to teach you because it's a secret. Huh? But then the Arizal came along and he said, no, we must teach it. Stop it with the, secret, with the secrecy. Make it available. And everybody said, how, could, how dare you make it available? Because the time had come. So the attitude that women are not allowed to study Torah that wasn't because there's something wrong with studying Torah. It was because as long as it wasn't necessary, it was discouraged. As soon as it becomes necessary, it's a mitzvah. <clears throat> and what has become necessary for women to study more than anything else is that part of Torah that men were not allowed to study. The, the, the hidden part of, of Torah. The inner part of Torah. Why? Because the, the mitzvahs and the laws and the details of how to do and what to do, if you live among Jews who practice, you find out how did our grandparents, grandmothers uh, learn about Yiddishkeit? They never opened a book. But if you live Yiddishkeit, so you know mitzvahs and their details and their so on. So that you don't have to necessarily learn from a book. <clears throat> so when we say that it is now necessary for women to learn <clears throat> from a book <clears throat> what is it that is now necessary that wasn't necessary before <clears throat> to learn about those things that we will not learn simply by observing our orthodox grandmothers and how they run their kitchen and how they run their home and how they raise their children. What won't we learn from that? We won't learn anything about God. So what part of Torah do we need now need to study more than any other part? The part that talks about God. The part that talks about uh, what to do if a cow is gored by a bull, by your neighbor's bull. Fine, if you have free time, you want to learn it, because to hate. But that's not exactly imperative. 
Well, given this definition of Torah particularly, where we say that Torah is one with God himself, unlike any other subject, where the concept of the subject and the subject itself are two separate things, such as a human being, knowing you and understanding you and analyzing you and explaining you and describing you doesn't affect you at all. And therefore, if my description of you is a little bit wrong, it won't damage you or, or violate you at all. Because whether I have a description of you in the first place is irrelevant to you. So whether the description is 100% correct or slightly off makes absolutely no difference to you. But with Torah, that's not the case. Torah is a description of God, so to speak. But it's not a description separate from the thing being described. The Torah and God are one. So that if I don't have a description of God, then I don't have God. When I do have a description of God, then I have Him. Therefore, if my description of Him is slightly off, then I am violating Him. And that's why in Torah, you can't just be academic about it. You're dealing with God Himself. How can you be indifferent. Somebody once complained to the Rebbe, somebody from Satmar, once complained to the Rebbe, how, how, can you, how are you allowed to stop people in the street and ask them to come into a truck and put on tefillin? It says in Shulchan Aruch that while you're wearing your tefillin, you're not allowed to have any unholy thoughts. And these people walking in the street, who knows what they what what kind of unholy thoughts they have when they when they're putting on film. So the Rebbe said, when you stop a Jew who hasn't put on film in years, and you and you invite him into a truck and you ask him to put on tefillin, he's not gonna have any unholy thoughts. He's busy with the tefillin. Yeah, he's busy with the tefillin. He says, when you go to shul every morning for for, tw for twelve years and you put on film by rote, you could have some unholy thoughts. So people coming into Yiddishkeit generally, are, their awareness is very high, heightened, about the significance of what they're doing, and they're not academic about it at all. It's very personal, it's very um, awesome, frightening see there, there's very little chance that you might be lighting candles friday evening at the exact specified time for ulterior reasons for ulterior motives what ulterior motives can you possibly have it's very unlikely that you're going to refuse to eat a non-kosher sandwich for ulterior motives so what are you afraid of do it do the mitzvah you don't know what you're doing it doesn't matter it can't, isn't going to do you any harm. You're not headed in the wrong direction with wrong motivations and so on. What could be wrong? But the study of Torah could be wrong. 
The study of Torah could be to satisfy your own curiosity. It could be simply because you like to think of yourself as an intellectual. It could be because you want to show off how much you know. So studying can be a, a poison. And therefore, in study, the yira has to come first. In other words, you basically have to recognize this is God's Torah. If you're lighting Shabbos candles and you don't stop to think this is God's mitzvah, you don't really have to stop to think. It's obvious. <laughs> There's no other reason to be lighting the candles other than the fact, other than the fact that God says. So almost, the mitzvah almost takes care of itself. But the study of Torah can be corrupted. We're saying that the, that the virtue, the advantage of the study of Torah is that it provides you with two forms of godly nourishment. What is the benefit or what is the, and I have to say purpose, but what is supposed to come from godly nourishment? So what if you, godly, if you have godly nourishment? So, then you can be happy. And how do you use godly nourishment? In doing the mitzvah, right? So ultimately, it's the mitzvah that really, that is, that is, that is the ultimate goal. So to say that the study of Torah is more important than the doing of mitzvahs, that, that's backwards. The virtue of the study of Torah is equal to all other mitzvahs in its effect. But what is its effect? That you will do the mitzvahs. There is such a statement in Gemara that every person should should pick one mitzvah in which he, with which he identifies more than the others and excels in that one mitzvah. But I, I think it. I think that that happens naturally, after a certain amount of time, and to begin that way is really not a good idea. In the beginning, you don't know yet where you're going to excel, so you do everything. After a while, you begin to see a pattern, and you notice where you have in fact excelled, and you make that your mitzvah, and then you put a special emphasis on that, and you identify with that, and so on. But that's got to come later. That can't come at the beginning. I mean, until you've basically uh, gotten into the habit of doing all the mitzvahs, how do you know which one is going to be your special mitzvah? So um, it really has to wait until a little bit later. It's a more advanced stage. When the Rebbe says that in the knowledge of Torah, there is both the surrounding light as well as the inner light, the internal light, <clears throat> what is the surrounding light and what is the internal light in the study of Torah? The, the internal light is the part that you understand. The surrounding part is the part that you don't understand. As we were saying before about the mind, the mind becomes totally immersed in a subject when it's understanding it, while at the same time the subject is immersed in the mind. Why is the mind immersed in the subject? Why is the mind surrounded by the subject? Because any subject, even the most physical, begins with a premise that cannot be understood. 
Any knowledge, any piece of information, any subject that we're going to study begins with an irrational premise. A scientist can't do anything, can't know anything, can't explain anything until he has established a fact. And that fact makes no sense. In other words, the scientist has no explanation for the fact. Given that fact, he can now explain further developments. But the fact itself, he can't explain. I can think of a lot of examples in that. I mean, one of Einstein's biggest discoveries, most controversial discovery, is that the velocity of light is the maximum velocity that any physical thing can have. Nothing can travel faster than light. Based on that, he built a whole theory. But ask Einstein, why can't anything travel faster than light? Don't know. It's a fact. So any subject that a person masters, he becomes the expert on that subject. The, the essential assumption that that subject is based on, even the genius does not know. He has to accept it. So that part of the, of the subject that he cannot understand humbles him and surrounds him so that in order to understand the subject, he has to submit to the subject. He has to throw himself into it because it is bigger than him. But that part that he does understand, the part that he does understand, he, he absorbs inwardly. He surrounds it. If that's true with physical subjects, it is certainly true with Taita. Because no matter how much you know of Taita, there's infinitely more to know. So the part that you're understanding, that part you absorb. But you're also keenly aware that there's so much more you don't know. And that surrounds you. So knowledge itself both surrounds and fills the person. And therefore, the study of Torah has both, both virtues, whereas the doing of a mitzvah has only one. But there's still a problem. The mitzvah is still greater than the, than the study of Torah. That part of Torah that you don't understand, and therefore it surrounds you, is something that could be understood. It is not infinitely and absolutely greater than your mind <clears throat> to where it can never be understood. Because you're talking about knowledge. Knowledge is essentially understandable the fact that you can't yet understand it so next year 50 years from now 100 years from now maybe you'll never understand it but somebody else will <clears throat> so when we say that a certain subject is too big for you to understand 
but it's still a subject. It is still within, within the realm of understanding. Otherwise, it's not a subject anymore. Whereas with a mitzvah, it's not, there, isn't, there is nothing to understand. It is not God's wisdom. It's God's will. There's nothing to understand in will. Will you either do or you don't do. So the mitzvah is infinitely greater than the person, whereas the knowledge that you don't understand, the part of the subject you don't understand, is greater than you, but not infinitely.